Hi, we here at Grace Life would love to help you discover Jesus' unconditional love and grace for you. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you and further establish you in the truth of God's Word. We're going to just really spend a little time now just looking at a, just a, an approach to studying uh, the book of Revelation. And obviously, you know, when you study anything, and especially the book of Revelation, I think it's uh, very useful to have a, have a framework <coughs> that you can work around. Uh, I'm just saying that is a way of... Uh, doing a study. There must be other ways as well, I'm sure. But I just find having a framework is, is very useful to work around. So I think you've been given a handout, um, which is a, the framework that I used, and uh, we'll talk about that a little later on. But I think the best way to understand Revelation is to try and put yourself in John's position. <laughs> I don't know how easy or difficult that is for you. Uh, but to try and really see things as he saw them. You know, it's exciting when you think of that. I mean, how long did this revelation take? How long was he there getting this download, if I can put it in modern terminology? Have you ever thought of that? I mean, was it uh, an hour and then he went off and had some tea or something? Or was it the whole day? Or was it in bits and pieces? I don't know, but I'm just saying. When you think about these things, you know, it's, it just helps us understand and appreciate how awesome it is that the Word of God has been preserved for us. Yeah. And uh, so, but to try and just see things the way John saw them, I think is a very useful insight into the material that we, we look at. So, in order to do that, you have to do one other thing, and that is you have to abandon traditional chapter divisions. In other words, you don't throw your Bible away, but you just pretend there are no chapters and verse references. Now, I'm glad they're there, because that, imagine if we, if we didn't have those, and we wanted to find something, yes, boy, we would be all over the place. We would never get to the end of it. But, of course, the chapters and verses were not introduced by the Holy Spirit. No. Uh, they, they were introduced in the, in the Latin Vulgate translation, I think, of the Bible way back in the Middle Ages, uh, just for the very same purpose that we're talking about now, to help people find their way around. But the people that put all those chapter and verse breaks in there didn't really do a great job. I don't think, in some instances. Because they put a, you know, a, a break in the middle of a whole thought. So now you kind of think, well, that belongs there, but this belongs there. But actually, it belongs together. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So when you see this outline, you'll see that the commentator that I followed actually did this. And when I saw that, I thought, man, this makes so much more sense. You know, now things have got a better flow <laughs> than they would have had if... We just go chapter by chapter. Um, many instances, the, the chapter 
end and the thoughts are contained in what's being expressed do co coincide, but it's not always the case. But you've just got to be prepared to abandon that um, because they often they will hinder a proper understanding of the text. Um, so that's the framework that I followed. Um, and it was presented like a play. You know, like you go to the theatre to watch a play and uh, you, you, you get to see different scenes in that play. You know, the part of the story will come through in the play and then the curtain comes down. And the curtain goes up and then you're introduced to a new scene. You know, the first scene might be in someone's living room and the next scene might be in the streets of the city. And that's really what you see John is experiencing here. It's amazing how, how frequently John moved around. <laughs> when I say that, I'm talking about in, in this vision he had. He was taken from this viewpoint to that viewpoint. Uh, he starts off by the, someone opening heaven to him and saying, come up here. So that's where he starts, you know. And uh, when you're in that, in that state that he was in, of being consumed with the spiritual realm, uh, to try and express that now to people, lesser mortals like us, who've never perhaps been in that place, it's a challenge. But I think he did pretty well. So the, the way I followed this, it was a, a play, and it is comprises eight scenes. There's obviously a prologue and, a, and an epilogue, which we'll look at. But there are basically eight scenes to each, and uh, with each scene comprising a whole number of sections in it. Then something else to consider when you study Revelation is, do the events that John is showing or is seeing follow one another in that order? Just because it's written in that order, is that the order in which he saw things? You hear what I'm trying to say? It's not necessarily the case. Could have been shown this, but then afterwards he sees that, but chronologically that maybe came after what he saw first. Yeah. You see, when you, when you have a vision of what God is doing, it's, it's, you know, it doesn't say that number one, okay, now number two, it's just like you get these downloads. <laughs> And, 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 and he records them as they come. He sees them and he... But then, you know, he maybe goes backtracks a bit. And I think this is really what is at the heart of the understanding of, the, of Revelation. That it's not a chronological sequence of events. The events that take place are not necessarily in the order in which we see them in the book. Uh... So, you know, that's the question people always ask me. Did, did John see events in the order in which they appear historically? And I don't know that he did. <laughs> okay. And then I think another thing that's important to and beneficial if you're going to understand Revelation better is to become more acquainted with, with its his historical setting. Uh, what was happening? When was all this taking place? What, what were the political, economic and other conditions of the day? Because <clears throat> um, John lived in that world. What was the world he lived in? 
and the world that the believers lived in as well. You see, none of Scripture is, has ever been written in a vacuum, into a vacuum. You know, Paul didn't sit in a, in, in a nice little office somewhere and think deep thoughts about God and write beautiful words for us to feed off for centuries to come. Uh, he was writing real things to real people were facing some real issues <laughs> and who needed to have things explained over and over again like us sometimes. So no scripture is written in a, in a, into a vacuum. Even, even things like, what about the geographic details of these, of these places? What was the world that they lived in like? We've already said, why was John on Patmos? What was he doing there? And when you come across Patmos, do you ever stop and think, now where the hang is Patmos? You know? <laughs> go and look. You know, you, you have a, a good old Bible has a book of maps at the end. <laughs> and those things are very helpful. And uh, <clears throat> then you ask yourself, where, where, what was Smyrna like as a city? Or Thyatira? Or Philadelphia? Or any of these little places that are mentioned here as churches? So what I'm saying is, if you're really going to get a, a greater grasp of Revelation, it's also good to do some background reading that you may not necessarily find in a, in a theological back book, but more in an encyclopedia or a geographical book or historical book, etc. I mean, the Roman Empire was the empire of the day. What did they, what relationship did they have with these Nutty believers, etc. <laughs> so, the other thing about Revelation is you can't study it in isolation. In fact, I don't think you can study any part of Scripture in isolation. Uh, what is the body of Scripture? have to say about the various aspects that are covered in Revelation. That's what I'm trying to say. You know, the things that are spoken about in Revelation, are they spoken about in other parts of Scripture? And if so, what does they say? So you can see your study is getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> and it's more exciting. And then uh, the other important thing is, what did Jesus have to say about these other these 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 things? Now, one of the biggest, or one one of the most important uh, portions of Scripture that you need to also study, if you're going to study Revelation, is you've got to study Matthew chapter twenty-four and twenty-five, because that's that's the last major portion of Jesus' teaching before his crucifixion. And uh, that's teaching that he gave after he had visited Jerusalem and the temple. And then he proceeded up to the Mount of Olives. And so Matthew 24 and 25 is known as the Olivet Discourse. In other words, that's where it took place. Sitting in the, in the Mount, on the Mount of Olives. Disciples are asking questions. Jesus is giving them the answers. <laughs> And uh, a lot of what he says there 
is relevant to, releva to revelation. But then there's also uh, the parallel versions in Mark, Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 17. Uh, these are some, not all, I'm not giving you a full exhaustive list, but these are the major sections that uh, relate to dovetail in with the material of revelation. Uh, then Paul also has some things to say about eschatology. Yeah. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and also Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. Those are all dealing with the same material. And then uh, there's a lot that I've already mentioned about the Old Testament. When you read in Revelation, you will be reading something that looks like Daniel, and then it looks like Isaiah, and then it does this come from Ezekiel, and this is from Joel, uh, the Old Testament prophets. So that's why you need some study aids, and uh, by that I mean a commentary or commentaries. Sadly, I, I think I mentioned this before, I've never found a a grace person, if I can put it that way, who has written a commentary on Revelation. May, there may be one, but I've never found it. <laughs> if you ever find it, please let me know. Um, written from a grace perspective, if I can put it that way. Um, but find a, find a good commentary. Uh, the, the one that I used, I don't know if you'll be able to get hold of it, um, unless you borrow mine and I'm not too keen to lend it <laughs> because I probably will never see it again you'll get so absorbed by what you're reading <laughs> no, I'm only joking I'd be happy to try and help you um, but the, the book I used was called The Message of Revelation and it was written by a guy called Michael Wilcock W-I-L-C-O-C-K uh, he's a needless to say an English writer and speaker there's a good theological background and obviously he's also a bit academic uh, but needless to say I think I, I found it a good I found it a good commentary is that my phone? oh dear sorry about that um, and uh, that message of revelation was is part of a series of commentaries called the bible speaks today and then I found a wonderful book by Paul Ellis called Letters from Jesus. And uh, he also wrote another book, AD 70 and the End of the World. Finding good news in Christ's prophecies and parables of judgment. <laughs> and uh, you'll see that I've, I've borrowed heavily from that in my putting together my thoughts on, on these things. So those are two books I can, I, can re I can recommend. So let's go to the study outline in the, in the, in, uh, that you've been given. I just want to say that firstly, um, we're not going to go into any depth of, uh, or study with, on, on Revelation chapter 2 the, and the letters to the churches. As I say in the study handout here, that that's really 
that can form a study on its own. If we if we get if we get into that, I tell you, we will. That'll be it. <laughs> Peter will be sitting here tomorrow and not stubborn much. We'll still be talking. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, I haven't. Uh, we're not going to 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 go into the the prologue in any depth, but I. I do want us to start with the prologue. I mean, that's an appropriate place to start. So, if you've got a Bible, uh, it might, would be useful just to have your Bible open. Just a few things I want to pick up here. I think some of it we've, we've talked about quite extensively already. Uh, the prologue in chapter 1, verses... 1 to 3, are the opening verses really. Um, the revelation of Jesus which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Well, what, is, what does soon mean? <laughs> How soon is soon? Now that's uh, already becomes the first thing where all the theological students will step back and say, okay, now let's look at soon. <laughs> How soon is soon? Uh, but uh, these are the little things. Sorry? Jesus also said he's coming back soon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and one wonders if that's actually, actually an accurate translation. Because he actually said, I'm coming back quickly. Oh, dear. <laughs> so what's happened to soon? Well, soon's getting longer now. <laughs> the sooner the better. <laughs> but that's what I'm just trying to convey to you. You see, you can read now and you say, well, okay, now what is this? What do they say about that? Well, I don't know. You have to find out for yourself. But um, it just goes on to tell us how the revelation came to John. But before we do that, it says there, those who read this book, okay, those who hear it, those who take it to heart will be blessed. In other words, they will be more than happy. That's important. Sure. There's no other Bible book in the Bible that actually says, read me and you'll be blessed. So, that's a profound statement actually. One that you can't just forget about. Okay, so that's an encouragement in itself to get into Revelation. And then the next thing I love is this greeting. Okay, it's to the seven churches in the province of Asia. But just listen to the way this begins. Grace and peace to you. Now what amazingly comforting words those are any time. But imagine what they must have been like to people in these Christians of those days. Facing the things they were facing. Grace and peace to you. From who? From him who? is, who was, and who is to come. From the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, who is the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Wow! <laughs> We're on the winning side. Now what does all that mean? Well, first of all, this is a greeting from the Godhead. 
from the Trinity. Grace and peace from Him who was, is, and is to come. That is, used of God, the Father. Not so. The seven spirits. Ooh, what's this now? Who the seven spirits? I know there's a Holy Spirit. Well, this is the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is a, an expression that you find first, I think, in, um, in um, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. It talks about the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, fear of the Lord. That's the Holy Spirit. Or that is Holy Spirit, not the. He's a person. He's not the. He's a he. Person. The Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, the Son. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This time, order Father, Spirit, Son. Don't ask me why. It just keeps you on your toes. Um, and then verse 5b is a, another important thing to remember. Why? Because that tells you who you are. To him who loves us, first of all, you're loved, and has freed us, we are free from a sin by, by his blood, and has made us, not is going to make us, has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory, power, forever and ever. Amen. So that's a wonderful affirmation of who we are in Christ. When you're reading this letter, you'll be blessed every time you read that. It's an affirmation to you of who you are. It's clarifying your identity and your purpose. We've been made a kingdom and priests to serve God our Father. So our identity and our purpose is made very clear. Morning, priests. <laughs> Kingdom of priests, of course, is a, is, a, is a reference to Israel, who were to be a kingdom and priests to our God. Eh? It goes back to Exodus. Only thing is they never fulfilled it. Because they try to do it in their own strength. But God has made us a royal priesthood. A holy nation. So this is another thing you'll find in Revelation. Is there's often references to Israel. The Israel. But we are the Israel of God. It's not referring to Israel, Israel. But Israel, the church. And I'm not preaching displacement theology. I'm just preaching what I see in the Word of God. Okay. So, that's a wonderful thing. Then there's a reminder in chapter 8. Who is speaking? Oh, before we get there, chapter 7. Now, this is an interesting one. Look, he's coming on with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. And so shall it be. Amen. Oh, he's coming with the clouds. That means he must be coming back. Eh? Well, he is coming back, but is this a reference to it? Actually, no, it isn't. What? 
you see the Bible uses two words for coming and the one that's used here is Ekamaya uh, coming in the ordinary sense of coming coming and going so whenever you see the word Ekamaya used it's just talking about a normal coming or going but when you see the word coming translated as parousia, that is a royal king's coming. So when Jesus comes back to earth, he will be coming as parousia coming. He'll be coming as royalty. But here, he is exomia, which means he is coming. And where is he coming to? This is a quotation from the book of Daniel. What did Daniel see? He saw him coming on the clouds and he came to the Ancient of Days, to the Father. So what the, what the disciples saw, they saw Jesus going, but actually Daniel saw him coming. Sure. And that is particularly relevant in in Matthew chapter 24 because so many times scriptures are translated as relating to the second coming of Christ and actually Jesus when it's actually talking about not talking about the second coming Amen. so when you when you you know Jesus comes in many ways comes in the Holy Spirit his first coming was with angels so when he's coming with angels he's coming to earth but when he's coming with the clouds, he's going away from earth, he's going to heaven. Alright, you look a bit bemused, but you'll see that it has to dig in. Get your books out and start looking to see if I'm talking the right things. Um, yeah, so that's verse 7. It's actually, it's just an affirmation again of who we have. Yes, yes Jesus coming to receive what God gave him, authority. Eh? Uh, Daniel referred to God there as the Ancient of Days eh? and uh, that's what happened we'll perhaps look at this in a little depth later if we have the chance Pardon? the two words for coming Erkomaya E-R-C-H-O-M-A-I Erkomai that means just a normal coming and then Parousia P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A Parousia In fact, often you'll see people make reference to the Parousia of Jesus and when they say that they're talking about the second coming or his return Alright But there's the two words that are used and, they, and you will pick that up when you read the original translation Rick Okay so verse 8 then, we carry on to, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is, was, who is to come, the Almighty. The Almighty. That's who's speaking to us, the Almighty. These are all just things to remind yourself of when you start looking into Revelation. Now we come to another interesting thing. In verse 9, John says, I, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and 
patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, the verse we looked at just now, on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. So what day of the week was John, did John have this revelation on? <laughs> no, we say Sunday. No, of course, that's the Lord's day. Well, you know that that term would have been totally foreign to the people who were listening to this. Because the, the early believers used to speak about the first day of the week. So this Lord's Day has got nothing to do with the Lord, our Lord. What was prevalent at this time and one of the greatest sources of persecution for Christians at this time was the practice of emperor worship by the Roman emperors. It was a, all over cities in, in the Roman Empire there would be busts of the Caesar or someone and they were re regarded as gods and they had to be worshipped. You had to worship Caesar. And so the days were set aside and would be announced in a city and say on such and such a day is the, is the Lord's day and on that day everyone was expected to come and bow before the emperor in worship, as the bust of the emperor. And that's why John was on the island, because he refused to, <laughs> probably, mm. if I know him. And many, many, Christ many believers were martyred because they refused to bow to the emperor. Mm. So this thing that has now become capital L, Lord's Day, capital D, is not the same as the day of the Lord. That's a different issue. That the Lord's day actually was this day that the Roman emperor is worshipped in your city. Isn't that interesting, eh? Mm -hmm. And the translators just thought, no, man, that's not what we want. We want, we want something that sounds good, man. <laughs> so everybody just goes along. Mm -hmm. We don't question it. We don't query it. And it's hard to pick up in translation, but if you read something of the background, then you'll find this is actually what, what it means. <laughs> All right. Verses 12 to 18. Well, that is the most amazing vision that John has. And he turns and he sees the seven golden lampstands. And amongst those lampstands, he sees someone that is like a son of man. And he describes this incredible sight that he saw. And uh, he was beholding Jesus. Wow. And that's the question that we always need to ask ourselves is, you know, are we following that Jesus? Or, or are you still following, or are we still following Jesus the Nazarene? You know, the one that we are familiar with. He had flesh and blood to him. He looked like us in his human form. Uh, nor, nor should we be following the resurrected Jesus. Because the resurrected Jesus and the ascended Jesus are not the same. He's in glory now. 
God is spirit. <laughs> okay? Well, that's, uh, these are things we have to come to grasp for ourselves. He had a resurrected body that was visibly a body that could do all sorts of amazing things. But he ascended into heaven after that. They saw him go. And he came on the clouds as we saw. And Jesus is now living in the realm of God. And by his spirit in us. Okay. Makes you think, eh? There's more to this than we often just allow ourselves to believe. But anyway, it's for you to make those <laughs> make those conclusions for yourself. I don't I'm not saying that you have to do this or believe it exactly this way. So then the the structure also in verse nineteen, the structure of the whole book is set out there for us. It just says, Write what you've seen, write what is now. Well, first, and then write what will take place later. So basically, John had to say, what have I seen? I've seen Jesus. What is now? The churches. In seven churches that he's writing to. And what will take place later? The rest of the content of Revelation. And then very kindly, in verse 19, we get explanations of the first two things that we we faced with. And those is, what are the seven stars and who are the seven lampstands? And we've already covered that. Uh, the seven stars in the right hand of God are the leaders of the church. We need to thank God that he has the leadership of the church in his hand. <laughs> He's got the whole world in his hand as we used to sing. He definitely has got the leaders in his hand. They are in a secure place. And so are you. And when you're in God's right hand, man, there's no way, no ways you're ever going to be anywhere else. <laughs> and then the seven golden lampstands, we've already told. Notice that's golden lampstands. Eh? Gold has value. And, and we have to grasp the value that God puts upon us. What He sees in you and, and me. And all of us as believers, we have incredible value to God. We're like gold, in a sense. And of course, there's seven churches. Now, people say, well, why only those seven? I mean, people have estimated that at this time, there was over a hundred churches in Western Asia, or, or the province of Asia, as it was then. And uh, why seven? Well, what is seven? Seven is completeness. So, basically what is said to these churches is, is fulfilled, fulfilling everything that needs to be said, and it's complete. Alright. So, now we can look at scene one. And that is, as I say, we're not going to look into that in detail, that's goes from chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 22. Um, hopefully sometime in the future we will have an opportunity to, or you will have an opportunity before then, hopefully, to look into the, to this section yourself. Because it, it, it's a very useful block of 
material to study and uh, has some amazing aspects when you really look at it through the, the eyes of grace, which is how we should look at it. So this basically is just about the letters, the contents of, of what is written to the churches in Ephesus and then in Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis. Thyatira, by the way, just to join a dot here, is uh, the lady Lydia. You remember Lydia? Who uh, got saved by hearing the gospel from Paul in Philippi. Came from Thyatira. Because that's a place where they did the special purple dye business that they were famous for. And it just shows you lots of little dovetails all over here. And uh, Sardis. And then there's Philadelphia and Laodicea. And probably Laodicea is the most used letter to whip the church with. <laughs> if, you're a, if you're a preacher or a pastor and you want to stuck the gemeente of Iki, then you give it to them through Laodicea, the letter to the Laodiceans. <laughs> we won't look at that right now. But uh, interesting, Laodicea was very close to Colossae. And uh, there's actually a reference in, in the letter to the Colossians that they should read the letter that was written to Laodicea by Paul and that the, that, that the Laodiceans should read, read the letter that Paul wrote to Colossae. So you see this very, the way in which John is distributing this letter is the way it was done. They didn't have to rely on a post office, they did it themselves. <laughs> they were wise before their time. And it's not just written to these seven, it is written to all communities like theirs. All of us, we're all experiencing life issues in our times. They will be different, but they basically all focus on one thing, and that is seek Jesus in all of it. And so, these letter, letters are written to all churches, regardless of time or place, and they are written to all believers, because all believers are the church. And so that's why at the end of every letter it says there, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So you don't just say, well, I'll listen to the letter to the Ephesians, but not to the rest. No, to all the churches. And the reason we should do that is because that will be for our benefit. That will help us. That will strengthen us. Well, so that's, I mean, obviously if we were going into a study here, then you, I've got a, I've got a book of notes about those letters. That's why I'm not even venturing to open it today. Um, right. So let's look now at, uh, <clears throat> at our study outline. Starts wonderfully in chapter, scene 2, chapter 4, from verse 1 through to chapter 8, verse 1. 
You got your outlines here. Yeah. Okay, basically what we're seeing here is the throne in heaven. Now, I don't like to rush past this one. The throne in heaven. And of course the thing that captures the eye straight away, apart from the throne and all the spectacular description that takes place there, uh, all that, that we see there is the fact that it is focused on one person really and that is the Lamb the Lamb and it's the, the Lamb who is given who is the only one who qualifies to open the, the scroll or the, the, the seals on the scroll of history so by opening those seals is un beginning to unfold history to us. But let's just look at Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But there was no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth who could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept, and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb. Have you ever been struck by that? I know who can open the scroll. He's the lion of Judah. You know, and he's the root of David. And then I saw a lamb. <laughs> what? You know, what's going on here? And I looked at this lamb and it, was, it looked like, like it had been slain. It was standing in the center of the throne and it was encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And this lamb, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits. This is the Holy Spirit we're talking about here of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures, the twenty-four elders, they fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain with your blood, you have purchased men for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Wow! Then I heard the voice of many angels, thousands upon thousands, ten thousand times ten thousand. And they encircled the throne of the living creatures and the elders. 
and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that was in them, singing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Wow. I think if I was John, I'd be flat on my face. Just caught up in the awesomeness of thousands upon thousands. Tens thousands of angels. Every all of creation worshipping the Lamb. Now I just want to stop there and talk about the Lamb just for a moment. You know, Jesus obviously is referred to as the Lamb. In Isaiah chapter 57 verse 3, 53 verse 7, he's spoken of that. And of course we know that when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he, he said to those who were with him, Behold the Lamb of God. And uh, <clears throat> when John was restored or when Peter was restored after he had denied Jesus, one of the things Jesus said to him at the Sea of Galilee was, Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. So, this is the first place where, in Revelation where we encountered Jesus as the Lamb. And now comes another interesting thing where it's good to know the Greek. <laughs> because like Good Greeks, they have more than one word for lamb. <laughs> We're happy with Chimay not a lamb, yo. Lamb and mutton. Yeah, mutton dressed up as lamb. Yeah, okay. But uh, the word that is used generally for for uh, the Greek word for a lamb is the word amnos. Okay, so when, uh, when, when John, in John chapter 1 verse 29, uh, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. He says, Behold the Amnos. Behold the Lamb of God. Um, Isaiah 53, 7 says exactly the same. The Amnos. And uh, that word Lamb, of course, is a direct indication of Jesus' character. That he was innocent, pure, and he had a pure purpose, and that was sacrifice. And of course, we know that's the that was the role of the lamb in the in the in the sacrificial system. Yeah. But the word that's used is amnos. Funny to say that when you come to Revelation, the word that's used for lamb here is arnion. A r n i o n. And all the references to lamb in Revelation use that same word, anion. Not amnos, anion. And the only place where anion is, is used outside of Revelation is in, in John chapter 21 verse 15 where Peter, Jesus says to Peter, feed my lambs. So in 29 times in, in 
Revelation, the word on, onion is used. Now what does onion mean? Well, obviously it means a lamb, but it means a very tiny lamb. What, what in English we would call a lambkin. Ek weet nie of a gelijke woord in Afrikaans is vir a klein lammerkie. <laughs> of a hengse klein lammerkie. <laughs> but this is speaking about a young, small lamb. It's a, it's a very intense contrast to the lamb. You've got a lamb, but he has a very small, tiny lamb. And the, in Revelation 5, we've just seen this, this, this scene described of a, described is, is a mighty angel. Living creatures, mighty angels, 24 elders, yet none of them are able or qualified to open the scroll. Sure. The only one that is, is this tiny, small, little lamb. But he's the same, at the same breath, he's described as the lion of Judah, the root of David. And the lamb stands at the center of the throne, this little lamb. And he, this little lamb also bears the marks of victory. He looks like he has been slain. So there are marks on him to indicate that he has been sacrificed. But then he has seven eyes. What does that mean? Completeness. All seeing. Nothing is hidden from him. He has all wisdom. He has seven horns. Horns are a symbol in Revelation of power. He has complete power. Seven horns. And everything is focused and centered on the Lamb as He takes the scroll. And everything proclaims His deeds and His worth. Imagine being part of that throng in heaven. Prepare yourself for a new job. You know, when we get to heaven, we think, well, just hope the nice golf course is there, or I'm just going to spend the whole day playing golf, or fishing, or doing what you like doing. You're going to be there worshipping. And you will never want to stop. You know, heaven's a noisy place. In fact, so noisy that in Revelation it actually says there was silence in heaven for half an hour. That was a miracle. It was worth, worth noting that the rest of the time heaven is like you think you've been to some worship services I tell you we don't know what is awaiting us what we will be part of when we get up there or wherever to worship Jesus the lamb will overcome them because he is lord of lords and king of kings with him will be his own called, chosen and faithful followers which is us that we are told in Revelation 17 verse 14 the Lamb will overcome because he is Lord of Lords King of Kings and he will have with him us, mm. his chosen ones wow 
interesting little bit of stuff that you might miss if you just read Lamb as Lamb and just realize that there's another depth to it. It's just amazing like the little insignificance, so to speak, of this is such a profound thing. Right. So then, in the outline, if we can just move on, when we get to chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, the first four scrolls are opened. And every time a scroll, a seal is opened on the, on the, on the, on the scroll, uh, it releases a horseman, a, a man on horse. And uh, we see these four horsemen, one after the other, so-called riding out across the world. And the, the one's on a white horse, and he represents conquest. And there's another one who's riding on a red horse, which is a representation of strife. There's a black horse that speaks about scarcity, uh, that's talking about food, etc. And then there's a pale horse, which is speaking about death. So then we need to know, what are these all about? And we look in that further on. And then there's the suffering. Uh, the fifth seal is opens. It talks about the suffering of the church. The sixth seal is the shaking before God's re Christ's return, or his parousia. And then the seventh seal, which I mentioned just now, is silence in heaven for half an hour. Okay, we're going to come back and look at these in a little bit more detail. I'm just giving you the outline quickly. Scene 3 starts in chapter 8 verse 2 and goes through to chapter 11 verse 18. And now we've got trumpets, seven trumpets being sounded. And they are trumpets that are issuing a warning of some disastrous event. Uh, probably describing aspects of what's already been described by the, by the opening of the seals. And uh, we see the world in, in, in turmoil and upheaval. This is just speaking of the centuries of world history. You know, the world has never been at peace. You realize that? There's never been a century of peace. There's been turmoil all the time. That's why the gospel is desperately needed. <laughs> People are in turmoil. Even now, as we sit here, I mean, we don't know half of what is happening in other parts of the world. World systems are in turmoil. Oh, I hear the price of diesel is going up badly next month again. <laughs> turmoil. And you know, all of these things and all these warnings, men still refuse. <laughs> The good news. This I find incredible. It actually it mentions that yeah, brings bitterness to them. Sad, isn't it? Eh? That's what we're up against. And then when the seventh trumpet sounds in this section, Jesus returns and the world is no more. So what we've basically done is we've covered the whole spectrum of history once and then we've been over it a second time but seeing some different aspects and now in scene 3 
versus 8. Uh, we've done that right now. Scene 4, chapter 11, verse 19. Through to chapter 15, verse 4. So here the real drama of history is unfolded for us and, and the whole cosmic conflict in the spiritual realm that is behind all the turmoil in the world is revealed. And of course the major characters that are involved in this struggle, if it were, are revealed. And that is the dragon. Okay, he's called the red dragon here. Or he's the great dragon. Uh, he is Satan. And needless to say, he would be described as a, as a dragon. Um, and then there's the woman. Interesting person, this. Could be the mother of Jesus, Mary. Uh, but it can also be the church. And then there's the child. And the child is Jesus. And the whole story is rather... The devil is cast out of heaven. Uh, he's efforts to destroy the child and then because he couldn't destroy the child he now wants to destroy the woman which is the church and then there's some further characters that emerge in this particular scene uh, you know the ones that all the people love reading about and this is the beast the beast there's a two beasts one from the sea and he comes wielding power and authority that is given to him by the dragon and then there's another beast that emerges from the earth. And he is more like a support role for the beast from the sea. He's there to give like a, like a, a credence or support to the first beast. Now, I don't believe those are people. I believe they're systems. Probably systems that are opposed to God and people saying, but this is right, you know. Everything looks good. You know that... The devil is a deceiver. He's not facing us with terrible things, but things that look good. Mm. Oh, you must do this, you know. I mean, for the sake of the world, we must do this. You know, I mean, there's lots of heated stuff raging at the moment about things like climate change. Well, but climate change is good. But what's, what's behind all this? <laughs> you know, and, uh, the fear is you get... Branded as a conspiracy theorist so often, if you get involved in these things, and but they, 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 you know we we we, have, we must have an understanding that there is a powerful realm in operation around us that we don't see that that has the ability to influence and manipulate people. Only the truth sets you free from that. <laughs> Amen. Sure, so there's all of that. And uh, then by contrast, John sees the Lamb and his followers. And also the three angels of, that appear, the one of grace, the one of doom, the one of warning. And then there's a final harvest. Again, we're at the end of the time. So again, we've just basically, from a different perspective, John has now been shown what happens and we land up again with the return of Christ the great harvest and the victory or the victory over the beast and uh, 
And then we can move on to scene 5. And here yeah, this starts in chapter 15 verse 5 through to 16.21. And now we see seven bowls. Whoa, when is all this going to stop? <laughs> seven bowls. Uh, and they are also referred to as plagues. And they are plagues of, so to speak, of God's wrath, which will be poured out on the earth. First four bowls are poured out, like we've seen the first four horsemen released, and then we've seen the, the, the four trumpets sound, now we see the four, four bowls poured out, and uh, it impacts the earth, the sea, the rivers, the sky, and then a fifth bowl is poured out, which is uh, of torment and pain. It's like described as painful sores and sickness. Yuck! All these things. And then there's a sixth bowl, which is being poured out. And that's of evil demonic spirits who go out to rally the forces against God. That could also be referring to events at the end of time, towards the end of time. And then when the seventh bowl is poured out, guess what? The world is no more. Christ has returned. So again, we've gone back over history again. Is that making sense for you guys? No, it is helpful. So we're not now faced with another whole lot of challenges. I mean, these challenges are happening around us all the time. So scene 6 starts with chapter 17 and verse 1. And it goes through to chapter 19, verse 10. Now we encounter another scene, and this is about Babylon. Now obviously Babylon is the city that epitomizes great evil. Biblically speaking, and, uh, you know, it was always regarded as a place of evil. Babylon is the great whore, or the great prostitute, as uh, referred to in, the, in Revelation. And then there are six words spoken and shared about Babylon and her fate as a city. Notice, of course, that Babylon here is personified as a woman of ill repute. <laughs> it's given personality, okay? Which is all part of the imagery of apocalyptic writing. And then the seventh word speaks of the one who comes after Babylon. And this is the great multitude, which is called the Bride of the Lamb, and referred to as the Jerusalem of God. Again, there's a Jewish term there, the Jerusalem of God, and that is the church. Okay. And then the scene ends with the true words of God. Scene 7 starts in chapter 19, verse 11, through to chapter 21, verse 8. And now we have here seven visions of what is really the ultimate reality behind history. And the first vision is of a rider on a white horse, but this isn't the same as the rider on the first white horse. Sure. This is the real rider on a white horse. And he has... As we know, he is the captain of the armies of heaven. He is Jesus. Second vision is of his assured victory. 
the third vision of his doomed enemies. The fourth vision of Satan being bound. The, vision, the sixth vision is of the triumphant church. That's us. And then there's this vision of the, the judgment, the great throne, and then the coming of the new age, the new heaven, and the new earth, vision seven. And, uh, of course, these chapters 21, from 21 and 22, are the two final chapters of the, of the Bible, which, which are free of sin. Like the first two chapters of the Bible were free of sin. Sure. Genesis 1 and 2, no sin. Revelation 21, 22, no sin. Amazing. Sin has been completely dealt with. <laughs> so, so we've had seven, seven scenes. Well, you know, if seven is the perfect number, why is there an eighth one? Well, I think just to be different. We have an eighth scene. <laughs> getting your money's worth at the theatre tonight. <laughs> uh, Scene 8 is from chapter 21, verse 9, through to 22, verse 19. And that, of course, now speaks of Jerusalem, the bride. And in these final revelations, John is shown the bride by an angel. He says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So we're at the wedding. We're about to be at the wedding. And then we have this wonderful revelation of God's city. The second revelation of God's dwelling. The third revelation of God's river of life. And then the fourth revelation is God's word is being validated and His, his words are seen to be trusty, trustworthy and true. The fifth revelation, God's word is complete. And then there's a final blessing in the last sixth revelation. And then the seventh revelation contains a warning that no one should take anything away from this book, just as one shouldn't add anything to it. Don't take away anything except the truth that it reveals to you. But don't delete it, in other words. Don't try to take things out and say they, they weren't there. That could be bad news. <clears throat> and then we land up with, believe it or not, an epilogue. Chapter 22, verses 20 and 21. The last two verses of that chapter. Okay, now, we'll look at some of that in a bit more detail. When are we going to break? Break about now. maybe is I won't go through all of this in detail because I think it'll be too long but maybe I can just do maybe one or two scenes I know that's incomplete in terms of the whole thing but just to show you some of the, the, the stuff that you can draw out of it 
And then maybe I can just spend a little time talking about some of the issues like, what is this, the rapture? You know, because the rapture is not mentioned in Revelation. Um, so let's talk about the rapture and, and oh, don't let's forget the Antichrist. <laughs> yeah, we, must know, we must know who the Antichrist is. So maybe I can just touch on a few of those things before we close. Yeah, maybe you want to do that or afterwards. Afterwards? Yeah. Maybe just um, if you could want to share something that was like a wow or a aha <laughs> or I never thought of it that way. Uh, I know there's lots. <laughs> you know, just go around and, uh, and share on that for a moment. The whole thing of no sin was quite interesting. Basically, what I, what I think. Yeah. Not that, that I think, but I think others. Scene 8 is what? Well. Scene 8 uh, is, is basically talking about the year after. Yeah, it's the yeah. first new yeah. day. Yeah. 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 That's why I think 8 is important. It's a new beginning. Yeah, hey, you're right ahead of things, Jim. But you said that 8 is what? It's like a new beginning. It's like saying it's it's calculated opinion. Yeah. Well, eight is also refers to grace. It's refers to a fresh start. Yeah. So you go through seven and then eight is the first day again, basically. Yeah. So that's why it's also That's very true. Yeah, that's that's exactly, I think, why 8C was necessary. Yeah, so it's complete after seven. Because that is a complete new start. Um, You know, like, Jesus rose on the seventh day. Eh? The, the sun, or the, uh, the Sunday, and then the first day of the week, it's the eighth day. Eh? That's a new beginning. That's also our first day, if you think about it, because Adam and Eve rested on day seven, seven mm. and they started to mm. work on day eight. Oh. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to connect with us, or if you'd like us to pray with you, please contact us at info at gracelife.co. If you'd like to order more resources or discover more about us, you can visit our website at www.gracelife.co or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.